This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Kyle Clark, founder of Beta, an electric aerospace company that's raised $900 million in funding. Kyle, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thanks for having me, my man. No problem. So to kick things off, I'd love to talk a little bit more about your background. And specifically, I was looking at your LinkedIn and I, I saw a pretty badass picture of you in a fight as a hockey player. So tell us about your early hockey career in the early days. Well, first of all, Lexi, we got to make a note to change the LinkedIn profile because that's not how we want to start. But since you went there, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I played a lot of hockey back in the day. I played for the U.S. Uh, junior development team and then went on and played at Harvard and played some semi-pro underneath the Washington Capitals organization. And I wasn't very good at hockey, so I had to fight everybody that would propose to challenge me. And that's the only way I could really stay on a team. And you're big, right? I think I read in a Forbes article, you're 6'6". Six, six. Yep. I'm bigger than I'd like to be. I'm about 6'6 six, six right now and uh, a little over that and 250 something pounds. It's awesome. That's so awesome because, you know, when you're flying airplanes, the weight and balance tends to get thrown off in the in the lateral CG, unfortunately. <laughs> Let's switch from hockey to your professional career. So what happened after hockey? What did you move into? Well, so I my career in, in aviation actually kind of co-started with hockey. I was kind of a an airport rat when I was little and always tried to sneak over to the airplanes help people work on them, jump in the airplanes when they test flow them um, after maintenance or, you know, importation from other countries and never really had the dough to go get my pilot's license. But the day I got my signing bonus from the Capitals, I went to the airport in Virginia and said, uh, said, I want my pilot's license. So I started my formal training the day I got my signing bonus for hockey. And that really uncorked a huge amount of opportunity for me and passion you know, hockey opened some serious doors for me, including aviation, including going to Harvard, including traveling the world with the U.S. team. And in some respects, taught me how to think about being on a team and trying to uh, make the people around you better. Where did this passion for aviation come from? I don't know for sure, but I can very definitively remember my very first flight in an airplane. We didn't, as a family, never traveled in airplanes when I was little. And I remember going to this airport in northern Vermont called Highgate Airport. And I showed up there and there's an old man by the name of George Coy, who was an aerobatic pilot and he imported Eastern European Yakalovs and other unique aircraft. And I uh, begged and pleaded and helped. And he brought me up in a Zlin, which was a two-seat side-by-side aerobatic aircraft. And he took off the runway and immediately flipped it over upside down and opened the canopy and started laughing and said, just cleaning out the M&Ms. And I was like totally hooked on finding a way to fly and tried building my own airplanes, studying airplanes. You know, by the time I got to college the first time, I had bought plans to airplanes, helped people build helicopters and Lawrence Mass. And, and it's not a definitive start per se, but I remember some pretty formative moments in realizing how absolutely beautiful and amazing flying was, you know, adding a dimension to a motorcycle by flying upside down is intoxicating and it's freeing and it's awesome. So it's been a progression. And like every day when I go flying, it's magical. Um, so it, it happens over and over again. Do you fly every day? I think so. Yeah. Most days I'll fly three or four different aircraft. 
as soon as we get off this call, I got to bring about 10 people across the lake to our flight test center and a caravan on floats. You know, I'll fly lessons with people in aerobatic planes, fly a lot of helicopters just because they're very utilitarian for us. But yeah, I mean, there's probably some days that I don't fly, but it's most days it's multiple planes. Are there any founders in the aviation space that you've just been very inspired by? Yeah, I mean, look, in this whole space of electric aviation, every one of them has inspired me in some way. No one founder in the aviation space, I would say, has it all. I certainly don't have it all. You know, I bring a particular expertise in power electronics controls and flying. And there are other people who have been wildly successful in marketing and in in business building. And, you know, everybody from Joe Ben to Adam Goldstein to even the folks that you know, folks like Brian Yako, who took over WISC, he was a, an early guy at, at Aurora Flight Sciences. He's one of the smartest dudes that I've, I've ever had dinner with. So all these folks you find inspiring in some way, but I would say that each of us have a particular view of the industry and thus a view of how to run our businesses. And to switch gears here, let's talk about the company. And obviously, now we'll include a bunch of pictures and links to videos in the actual show notes for people listening. But because this is an audio podcast, can you just paint a picture for us of what this is exactly? Sure. So aviation and aviators, you know, operate in this cognitive dissidence from sustainability and climate change. Turbine engines and even, you know, recip engines to some extent are pigs when it comes to fuel consumption because they're utilizing technologies out of the 50s and 60s. So a lot of folks realized at the same time that the electric propulsion systems had reached a power density and reliability and energy density in the context of batteries have reached a certain performance level where we can actually do commercially viable missions with a fully electric aircraft. So Many folks realize this at the same time from the military to people like UPS to individual entrepreneurs like myself. And we all went at it slightly differently, i.e. going after different markets and identifying different configurations. What we did here at Beta is we built a few different electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft and settled in on one design and we call it ALIA, A-L-I-A. And it's a 50-foot wingspan, high wing, 14 feet tall, so it's a big aircraft, 44 feet tip to tail, carries six people or, you know, four pallets, you know, big shipping pallets in the belly. So it's a big kind of voluminous fuselage. And the propeller is right at the tail of the airplane pushing it forward. And there are four large lift propellers that pick it up in the air. So what happens is the aircraft starts off with the lift propellers, picking it up in the air, and then the rear propeller starts pushing it forward and creates kind of a runway in the sky. And those lift propellers slow down and slow down as the airplane goes faster and faster forward as the wing starts to pick up some of that lift. And then at about 68 to 70 knots, you shut those top rotors down completely and they sit like javelins, just kind of pointed into the wind. And the wing carries all the lift of the plane and the single propeller at the back pushes the plane through the air. And what's like special about that, when you hit that phase of transition and you're flying like a regular airplane, you've got this phenomenal visibility because you have no propeller kind of beating the air in front of you. And the glass goes like down to your ankles and up to your forehead. And for me, it's like you're in a glider and you've got this super quiet 
motor, electric motor, 20 feet behind you, making really no noise. You have a little bit of a propeller noise, but when you have that tuned properly, you barely even hear it. And you whoosh through the air and you can hear the air around the fuselage and over the wing. And it reminds me of flying like, you know, gliders or Piper Cubs or something where you can kind of, you don't have to look at the instruments because you can hear the air around the body of the aircraft. And then at the other end of the flight, you turn the lift propellers on and they start to act like lift augmentation devices as you slow down and the wing starts to make less and less lift the slower you go and the propellers start to pick up some of that lift. So the transition out at the beginning takes about 30 seconds and the transition in at the end of the flight takes about 45 seconds to slow down and then you land the aircraft on the equivalent of a helipad. Uh, so you don't need an airport. And you've done it, you know, without burning any fuel. And it's kind of a magical experience. So in, in simple terms or a simple way to think about it, is it an airplane that takes off like a helicopter? That's a great, I should have said that myself. Yes, it's an airplane <laughs> that takes off like a helicopter. Done. <laughs> is it a weird feeling and a weird sensation when you're flying in this thing and it's just dead quiet? I did a hot air balloon a, a few months ago and I was just mind blown when you're sitting up there floating and it's silence. Obviously you have that roar of the fire every 30 seconds, which distracts you. But you know, in that 30 seconds of peace and calm, it's almost a little bit scary just how silent it is. Was that your experience? Like the first time you went up? Yes, it is. Like in the first aircraft we built had eight 11 foot diameter rotors. And as you got going faster on it, no longer did it sound like a propeller. It sounded like you were swimming. It was like this weird, like multi-frequency whooshing but this aircraft i think it's underappreciated you're exactly right once you're flying on the wing and that propeller is way behind you and pushing you through the air um and i've had this happen with a bunch of customers and other people that have flown with me where they'll stop looking inside and they'll look outside and all of a sudden like their entire demeanor changes and their shoulders come down their back goes down and they just start looking around and they realize that all of that claustrophobia and anxiety of normal airplanes is gone. You've got phenomenal visibility and you can hear the air and there's nothing like beating the air around you. And people start looking up and down and they're, they're relaxed. And I actually think that as these aircraft get deployed into the world, people won't admit it because we're all kind of tough guys, but people are anxious about flying, not so much because you're up in the air, but because you got all this racket and noise and screaming of a jet engine and claustrophobia with these tiny little windows out the side, that all is going to go away with electric aviation. How far out do you think we are as society for it to be all electric aircraft? Is there ever going to be a point where that's the case? I think it will be. And again, electric aircraft doesn't necessarily only mean battery electric aircraft. You know, we fly electric aircraft every day, both the ones that we make and the other people send us electric aircraft to test on our charging systems. So we get to fly all kinds of neat electric aircraft. But, you know, certification is the point at which people can use these for commercial missions. And that's still a couple years out for everybody. And then you'll see these start to do small regional missions, you know, within New England, in the Bay Area, down through Southern California and Texas, you know, let's say 200 miles and less, you know, three, four more years, all of a sudden you get to the point where you do four 500 miles. I would say it's 2030 before we go up and down the East or West Coast. 2035 before we're doing transcon type flying. And then there's going to be some shift where there's some step function changes where we start consuming hydrogen or air metal batteries or some advanced 
batteries that are in the lab right now that are showing exceptional promise for energy density. And then we're going to start to really take out the single aisle aircraft, move faster, higher, and longer range. And I think by 2040 and 2050, you hit parity with energy density of these alternative energy storage mediums, regenerative and jet fuel. So when you hit that parity and your cost is way lower, then all of a sudden you get to the point where no new aircraft are going to be jet A burning and they're all going to be consuming either hydrogen or something else. Now, take me back to 2017. It looks like you launched or officially formed the company in in February 2017. What was happening at that stage in your life where you said, all right, this is it. I'm going to go in and I'm going to build this aircraft and and build a business out of this. Well, I mean, that comment, I'm going to build an aircraft, build a business out of it, had started in like 2001 when I kind of started conceiving Beta Air and I was playing hockey and designing airplanes. And then I went back to school at Harvard. I didn't finish the first time around. Not even the second day. It'll be three tries to finish school. But on my third try, I went back and my senior thesis was called Beta Air. And I designed a high wing pusher hybrid aircraft and built a simulator and built a flying model of it and presented it and won actually the thesis of the year in the engineering department at Harvard for this design and the motion queuing algorithms to run the simulator and all that stuff. And I pitched this idea to anyone that would listen, yet I couldn't get anybody to bite or invest in the company. I got a couple little people, but I didn't give that up then. I just started another company in Power Electronics. We built it and sold it. And I tried Beta Air again and didn't work and pitched it. People wouldn't bite. Come 2012, we sold the second company and uh, started pitching it a little bit harder. And I had the means to start sponsoring UVM and and university teams to do elements of the aircraft and uh, started building pieces of the aircraft. In fact, a lot of the folks that work here were on those student teams, senior project teams. And then in 2017, per usual, I was pitching this idea to everybody that would listen. And I met Martine Rothblatt actually down in Philadelphia. And she said, uh, she goes, I like it. And she said, let's meet on Friday. And we went over and we met at her house that Friday. It was uh, March 31st, 2017. It was my daughter's birthday. And we started talking and we ended up talking for 12, 14 hours through driving around town. We went up to Montreal. We went over to her other house in Magog and just talked about philosophies of business, technical development, airplanes. And she said, why don't you go home and write down the key elements of how you think we should go about doing this? How would you go about eliciting critical thinking in aviation? And so I went home and I painted a watercolor, wrote all over it in pen, and I sent it to her at like 4 a.m. that Friday night slash Saturday morning. And she wrote back to me at 9 a.m. And I remember I was working on a motorcycle in the garage and my wife came out with my phone and it was a text from Martine and it just said, you're on. And so she threw a million and a half bucks into the kitty. I put everything I could into it, which was about the same. And we designed, built, and flew a vertical takeoff and landing electric aircraft with eight people in 10 months. And it was the largest electric, battery electric aircraft I've ever flown. And we did it quietly, tucked away up here in Vermont and over in the Adirondacks, upstate New York. And because we did that so efficiently, it opened all kinds of doors and we got Air Force contracts and UPS contracts and United Therapeutics contracts. And, and so 
like the question about 2017, 2017 is when we formally refiled the Articles of Incorporation in Delaware. It's just a point in time on a, a lifelong pursuit of doing something fun and interesting and meaningful in aviation. So you were flying within 10 months and maybe the math's a bit off, but it sounds like it was around $3 million was invested in total. Is that normal in this space to be able to have something off the ground that quickly? Well, that not even close. I mean, it was by all respects insanity to think that we could go and do that. But I had this friend, Austin Meyer, who founded X-Plane, and he helped us with all the modeling and made some connections for us to get our wings built. We designed these tails. We had a company out west do the layups for us and modify some high-performance wings. I donated a fuselage of an airplane and a bunch of power systems. A bunch of people, we donated our time, of course. That would have been really expensive if people were getting paid to do this. And we just put everything we had into it. You know, like I had a machine shop at home and wood shop and just brought it into the hangar. So yeah, it was done. You know, the place where we spent money was like buying batteries, buying wheels and brakes. And, you know, we made all the propellers in my garage. It is not normal at all. In fact, like during that time, Airbus was doing Bahana which was like a $120 million funded program to get an unmanned aircraft flying, which we said, we're going to do it with, you know, my butt in the seat. And so not only did we do it quickly, built a 4,000 pound aircraft and flew it, but we did it with a person in it with triplex redundancy on in flight controllers that we wrote all the code from scratch on. And so, you know, it just, it was a testament to work ethic and commitment and frankly, just being lucky with with smart people, like this guy, Dave Churchill, who is our CTO now, one of the smartest dudes I've ever worked with. And same thing with Herman Wiegman out of GE and, and this guy, Arturo Deeb, who was a programmer and Chris Townsend, who was a sensory expert. None of these guys, by the way, had to work because they all had successful careers and exits with other companies. And they dropped in here and it turns out smart people want to work with smart people. And that's what gets them high. And you don't need to pay people that really care about what they're doing. And that's the team we formed. Since the early days when people were working for equity and Lewis salary, we now have turned the corner. And I think that we pay people enough to take the subject of money off the table, but we still provide equity to everybody who joins the company. How clear was your vision at that time where you could, you know, get people to to liquidate their 401ks and, and go all in? Was it like this crystal clear mission or is it more like this like loose idea, like you have a, a cool thing in your brain or a cool idea in your head that you want to build? Like how clear was that vision at that time? Well, I can say that the mission and the vision are crystal clear. However, the path and the plan are not crystal clear. And what we do is we basically outline some values and philosophies of how we're going to go about doing this. We're going to be simple, pragmatic. We're going to respect mother nature and physics, and we're going to be intellectually honest with each other of what's possible. And once we establish that baseline and agree that it can be done technologically and that there's a market and people willing to pay for it, which was easy here because the cost advantages are so compelling then that part is like super clear. Now, do you lay out like a Gantt chart and a project plan that outlines every definitive step between A and B? Certainly not. But you also look at it pragmatically and you say, look, if we, we operate these values and we know that this mission is worth pursuing, then it's really hard not to invest in it. So I didn't actually go to anybody and say, hey, 
man up, put your money on the table and make this happen. Those people came to me and said, I'm all in. And by the way, those people have already done very well. So, you know, that's, you feel good about that. Now, if we failed, would you still feel good about it? For sure. Because, you know, you tried your best and, and trying your best means putting everything on the table. So I didn't have to convince anybody, frankly, they jumped on and, and got a feel for what we were doing and then volunteered to do that. If we zoom out 20 years into the future, how do you define success? What will success look like for you? So obviously right out of the gates that we make a meaningful dent in decarbonizing aviation. Like I started with like this cognitive dissonance of aviators running turbine engines and, you know, 1955 design horizontally opposed recip engines. It's a joke. We need to decarbonize aviation. We need to do it with electric and initially we'll do it with batteries and in the future we'll do it with different energy sources. That will be success. When I say meaningful, it means that you'll see more ALEAs or other electric aircraft in the air than any other type of aircraft. Now, some of the biggest polluters are huge planes doing short, low altitude runs, and it'll take a little time to start to get them out of the air. But the other thing is as a business, right? If we are true to our values and we continue to innovate, we operate with a people first principle and we can look each other in the eye and shake each other's hand and be proud of what we've created together, then I will call that absolutely success. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And in terms of the business model, and I'm guessing this may change as you continue to go to market, but is it selling the aircraft? Is it like aircraft as a service? Is it, you know, selling access to the charging infrastructure? What's that like core business model? Yeah, A and C. So it is selling airplanes and selling access to the charging network. We are not in the business of operating aircraft, of, uh, you know, selling multimodal transportation services, we look in the mirror and say, hey, what are we good at? And frankly, we're good at product development. There's a very different skill set if you want to be an optimized operator of aircraft. So we're developing product that we can build and sell. And on the charging network, we develop those chargers ground up, we deploy them, and people pay us to use them. In fact, there's a bunch of them out there right now that people are paying to use, mostly people in cars, because they like the fast charging capabilities of the chargers and the standard works for cars and or airplanes. But that ratio will change as more and more electric aircraft hit these skies. And I was reading a Forbes article, and I, I think the title was Amazon and UPS are betting on your startup to change shipping. Uh, I guess we can call it a company now, probably at this stage, but they're betting on you to change shipping. How will that change shipping? Can you help us visualize that? Yeah, for sure. Look, so if you think about how many times you press buy online and packages have come to your door versus how many times you've gone and jumped on an airplane in the last month, year, two years, five years, I don't know, pick a time. You bought more stuff online and created more flights probably by the stuff you purchased than by jumping on an airplane. So shipping and logistics is kind of the dark horse here of making a meaningful change in aviation. The diversity of routes is pretty high from short range express cargo stuff to, you know, worldwide transatlantic and transpacific trunk routes. There's a lot of small short range express cargo routes that we can do today with electric aviation. 
And what's interesting about that is that you don't have to deal with all the stuff that humans bring to the table, like complaints and on-time cargo. Like the cargo is going to be there if you bring the box there. You don't get to bring the human there. You have to ask them to show up, right? The fact that the aircraft as a cargo aircraft can actually go slower than a aircraft carrying people. As long as it's moving, those cargo carriers are pretty darn happy. And when it's moving in the air, it's moving approximately 10 times as fast as it is across the ground on average, even in the slowest of airplanes. So you have a market that we can serve today. The certification barriers are lower. We make a bigger dent in climate change. Cargo and logistics is growing faster than passenger travel right now. I would challenge anybody who questions our business model as to why are you doing passenger first? It just makes way more sense. Now, I understand why they're doing passenger because it's easy to pallet, right? People who are seeking venture capital money, they're like, hey, do you sit in traffic all day? And the investment manager's like, "Uh uh-huh. He's like, how would you like to jump over that traffic? Well, I'd like to do that. Well, invest in my company. Well, it turns out the packages don't have feelings. However, economically, it's a much better play. So even though it's easy to understand air taxis and passenger travel, and we're going to do that as well. I'll tell you in a second why. But cargo and logistics is the first entry point that makes tons of economic sense. It's a mission we can close today. It'll make a meaningful difference in climate change. And my bet would say that if we have thousands of aircraft deployed with millions of flight hours, when it's time to do passenger travel and the municipalities get their head around it, people will be like, yeah, yeah, I want to ride on that aircraft that has millions of flight hours and thousands of deployed aircraft. And we as Beta will win at the passenger travel as well. And just to unpack that a little bit more, if you're looking at cargo and logistics, is this replacing current aircraft or would this be replacing like trains and semi-trucks and and that type of logistics as well? So initially it'll replace current aircraft and those are called feeder aircraft. And those typically run regional routes, bringing packages from disparate airports into hubs. And those hubs have a whole bunch of jets. Those jets get loaded up with packages. They go to Memphis, they go to Louisville, they go to Cleveland, and then they get resorted and distributed out to another set of jets that go back to this airport with different packages on it, presumably. And then it goes back on these feeder aircraft and goes out to the regional airports. Like here in Burlington, Vermont, they send a couple of tiny little aircraft out of here down to uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, where it gets on a 757 that flies then to Philadelphia, then flies down to Louisville at a big sorting hub overnight, then it comes blasting back out to wherever it goes. So initially it, it replaces those feeder aircraft. However, in the next step, you actually do what they call hub bypass and you load up the aircraft with a bunch of packages that are going from New York City to Buffalo or Buffalo to Chicago or Chicago to St. Louis. And, and instead of going through the hub in a radial network, you do a hub bypass and it's the mesh network of the future. So in the future, if you buy something online and it comes out of a distribution center, in, in your case, out of Cupertino, it goes directly to San Fran or it goes you know, out here in Newark, up here to Burlington, Vermont, as opposed to going south to Louisville and back up or south to Memphis and back up. So it's an entire new way of thinking about shipping and logistics, all based on data and the fact that you have this new opportunity that isn't a massive jet. Now, I think... To answer your question another way is that when you buy something online in five years and you click a little button at the bottom that says, hey, I care about my individual carbon footprint. I want this package to come to me with zero carbon emissions. It'll come on an electric airplane 
and then get delivered to your house in an electric package van. And guess what? Your impact on the world is better. It's less carbon emissions. And frankly, people are not only willing to pay for that, it costs less to get me the package. So, you know, that's the other way to answer the question, I think. What happens? How did you build trust early on with Amazon and UPS? Obviously, every company in the early days, you know, has a trust and credibility problem. It's hard to get companies to give you a shot. And that's, you know, if we're just talking about like SaaS and you're like cybersecurity software, it's hard to get an enterprise to give you a chance there if you're you're new and untested. How do you get a massive company like UPS or Amazon to give you a shot in those early days? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's also the answer is contained within the question. Trust and credibility is all you have. It is all you have with these companies or investors for that matter, right? Because you're not trading on EBITDA or revenue or anything else. You're saying, hey, trust me, I've done some calculus or I built a prototype and it works. So the only way I know how to do that, because I'm a simple-minded engineer, is to actually go build the thing and then invite them up to come and fly with us. And that's exactly what we did. In fact, you know, one of the secrets to success here is, I wouldn't say set a low expectation, but set a no expectation and let their expectation be what it is. And when they show up and you say, I just did this recently with a guy, he calls me up and he goes, hey, I'm interested in your company. I said, why don't you stop here on your way through? And he landed in his Gulf Stream. He comes up and I said, you want to go flying? And he's like, what do you mean flying? I said, you want to come fly the electric airplane with me? He's like, really? I'm like, yeah, let's jump in. He's like, but it's nighttime. I said, yeah, we, we can fly at night. We're legal to fly at night. Let's go. And we jumped in the airplane. We did a beautiful night flight. And I said, come on over here. Let's watch this. And we plugged the aircraft into the charger. And after flying for more than an hour, we put $9 of electricity in the plane. And he's like, this is amazing. I, first of all, never thought I'd be flying with you. The energy cost is nothing. And we just did it at night. Like this is the real deal. And the point of my story there is that how do you build trust with Amazon and UPS and whatever? You can make all the fancy PowerPoints and photo renderings and, and show them spreadsheet upon spreadsheet. But the reality is in these hardware businesses, in things as, as real as aviation, the trust is built when you show them a piece of paper that says the FAA has agreed that this is a safe enough aircraft to go and fly in this form, pick a thing, R&D, market survey, whatever, certification. And we're doing it. And it works. And look, take your headset off while we're flying and listen. So my way of doing it at beta may not work for everybody, but it's it's to do real things and not talk about it until after you've done it. And when it comes to FAA certifications, is it somewhat like drug making where there's you know like different phases of clinical trial and then they get approved at a certain point where it's you know fully approved? Like, does it work like that with the FAA or how do these certifications work? So it's a little bit like drug making, although because it is much more objective, the engineering process of an airplane versus the biology of humans, where the trials are, you know, subjectively analyzed by panels of experts. In our case, we have design standards that we propose to the FAA. So for example, if a material has a statistical deviation in its ultimate strength point of some percentage, we say, we're going to respect that. We're going to take the worst case. But when we multiply it by all the different systems that have to fail prior to letting the aircraft fail or have a catastrophic event, this is the probabilistic outcome of that calculus. And the FAA either agrees with it or not. And if they agree with it, we execute that as a design methodology. And then we have to go back to the FAA and prove that we executed those design methodologies at every step 
the aircraft design process. And we do that for things like semiconductors when they're power electronics or magnets when they're motors. And uh, we multiply the statistical probability across all of these different failures to get an overall catastrophic failure rate of the aircraft. And then we go and build it. And frankly, there's a subset of tests that validate that we did that right. So we'll do uh, structural tests where we'll actually bend the wing until it breaks. We'll bend the tail until it breaks. And you have to be a, within a particular margin of error of your calculus in order for the FAA to believe ultimately that the roll-up of all those methodologies yielded a safe aircraft. The process itself starts with a design application and then it goes on to a basis of certification, which is like, here are the rules that we're going to comply with. And they're like, hey, that makes sense. You're building an airplane, you're building a helicopter, whatever. Sometimes there's holes in the rules and we have to propose a rule. And then they adjudicate on that rule. Once we do that, we then propose what we call a means of compliance, which is a series of tests that will prove that we met those rules. So it may say we test 40 units of motors or 100 units of wings or whatever to this environment and this test condition. And then they say, oh yeah, I agree with your method as well as your means of compliance. And then when you finally say, I want a design type certification of the, of the airplane, they'll come and inspect the actual airplane and fly it with us. And then there's a whole nother thread to prove that your production is certified as well. And that's just a quality management system and a whole bunch of other systems that say, I'm going to build the same airplane over and over again. Look, aviation is like 3000 times safer per mile driven or mile flowed than driving on the road. You know, we haven't had a commercial aviation major accident in like, I think seven or eight years in the United States. And every year there's 40 plus thousand people killed on highways. The FAA and aviation have done a great job of making this exceptionally safe. And so that entire process I just described is paid for by a lot of people that unfortunately weren't so safe when they did it, but it's working very well. Something else I want to ask about is the valuation. And we don't have to go into the exact number there, but from my conversations with founders, there's like three big milestones that every tech founder dreams of. And that's, you know, taking a company public, having it acquired for a meaningful exit. And then of course, you know, building a billion dollar company. So for you, when you were starting this day one, was that in the back of your mind? Did you have that idea that this could become a multi-billion dollar company or does it feel like you more kind of stumbled across this? Well, first of all, I totally disagree with those three things that every tech founder has even in the back of their mind. I will genuinely say that I don't want or care about an exit. Like we're not building a business that we love and a space that we love to exit the company. Like that would be insane. You might as well go do something else anyway, right? The idea of exiting a company, I think is oxymoronic to me. But that said, we built the company that we love and we like, and the people here are awesome and we're doing it in a space. And if I had all the money in the world, I'd do the same darn thing. So there's no sense in leaving. However, if you execute on a vision, like a mission to decarbonize aviation and revolutionize aerospace, there have been way, way more than tons of opportunities for exits. And fortunately, we've been in a position to say, no, thanks. We're going to continue doing what we're doing. We love it. And as far as the valuation goes, like the evaluation of the company is really only means to capital. If you're thinking about developing a company, it gives you a platform to raise money. And that's about it because it's all just a strange calculus of TAM by probability of getting some portion of that. 
and frankly, just staying focused on the mission that you've determined is important to you will yield the opportunity to have a good valuation such that you can get access to capital. But ultimately, the business needs to make money to be solvent. If you've chosen a good mission, it likely will make money. And the value of the business, ultimately, it's its ability to, to do that. It's not in its top-line enterprise valuation at some point in time. So I, I never actually sit around and think about like the valuation of our company outside of when we need a little bit of capital for a raise. I don't care what the value of our company is. What I care about is whether we're on track to meet our mission. And sometimes that means we could have a point in time with evaluation. And like very bluntly, I have no interest in exiting the business. They may throw me out one day, but you know, <laughs> gross. They'll have to drag you out. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see how it goes, but yeah, <laughs> I had some training back in the day. <laughs> yeah. I saw the, the hockey pictures. No. It looks like all of the funding, which we you know, talked about, was uh, 900 million, which is a, a staggering amount of money to be raised. Is it accurate that the majority of that came after 2021? Yes, the majority of that did in 2021 and in 2022 is when we did our two raises. Yeah. Totally skipped the whole venture capital world because we got contracts with customers and we put in our own dough at the beginning, which was just really fortunate. Mm, got it. Okay. So from 2017 to 2021, that was all self-funded and customer funded. Yes. Did anything else happen in 2021 where you said, okay, now is the time that we're ready to go and find investors and have them dump you know, fuel on this fire? Yeah. I mean, I think as we educated ourselves on what we want to do to be as a company, like at first, a lot of good technology proved the technology worked. And then when we started to really in earnest move into industrialization, and say, look, we got to build these aircraft and the best people to do it is going to be us. Then we got to build a factory and we got to buy tooling and do all this stuff that is just really capital intensive. And we had, you know, Martin Rothblatt, Chuck Davis, Dean Kamen, and they were on the board and they basically, you know, we all looked around and said, Hey, let's go move to the next phase of this business. You know, we've done the product development, we've done the engineering. And now we're going to go and move into production. And that's what we've done over the last year and a half, two years. And I'll ask you just a, a couple more questions here before we wrap. So obviously the company's been very successful to date. What do you think you've gotten right? If you reflect on the success, what have you gotten right? On a technical front, I think maintaining absolute rigor on simplicity of design. It is too enticing to incorporate every new technology into something as safety critical as an airplane or a medical product. In order to enter into service, we needed a simple, pragmatic airplane. So that we got right. And it's proven in its performance and its reliability and its certifiability. The other thing that I think we got right is the extreme focus on people. If you came here today, the one thing that people cannot not leave here with is a sense that everybody actually likes and loves doing what they're doing here. They care about the people around them. Like the spirit here is high, the culture is awesome and people believe in each other. And, you know, we don't have this employee company relationship. It's a community and a bunch of people. I mean, you asked earlier, like what you wanted me to be called team member, CEO, founder, whatever. I call myself a team member because Whoever in the room has the most information of the topic that we're discussing gets to be the CEO for that meeting. 
you know, it would be really naive for me to think with all these smart people around me that I'm going to be able to adjudicate on some topic after hearing it out for an hour of technical discussions. No, like there's a lot of people in here who have studied and opined on this stuff and thought about it and tested it and stayed up really, really late doing thermal analysis on it or whatever they're doing. They get to make that decision. Now, if I have something to offer from a different perspective, of course, I'm going to interject that. So, you know, people love being here. The culture is awesome. And it is huge priority for us to continue that. Do you think you have a superpower? Like, is there one specific skill that you're just the best in the world at or one of the best in the world at? I don't know. Opening my gym locker. Nobody else knows the code. Um, do I have a superpower? I, I don't think so. I consider myself a decent pilot. The interesting thing here, when we go out and do test flights, there's partially how, you know, we call it a velvet arm, how good you are as a pilot to be able to manipulate the aircraft through whatever test points we're doing. But like 90% of the work we do as a test pilot is understanding the systems and being able to like feel the tickle in your back of what system is behaving properly or not, listening to the aircraft both through data, vibrations, thermal, sounds, smelling what's going on. Like you have to, you have to like live inside the aircraft and understand all of the electrical systems, all the control theory, visualize what's happening around you. And then you can safely execute and turn to the unknown. And I would say, if I can contribute one thing to this team, it's crossing that line of being able to fly and understanding the systems at a very, very deep level, such that we can close that portion of our business. And final question, if we just zoom out maybe three years from today, can you paint a picture for us for what the company is going to look like in three years? Sure. Three years from now, we will be on to a third block of our aircraft. We will have released our design of another aircraft. We'll be through certification, enter into service of both the CTOL and the VTOL aircraft in rate production and still doing a boatload of R&D because we're just scratching the surface on, on electric propulsion and aviation. And we don't know what we don't know yet. We know the performance is awesome right now, but I think it can be awesomer. So we're going to see better and better performing electric aircraft, aircraft popping off the production line and higher performing aircraft on the books right now that will be flying. Last question. When can I fly in one? Today. Well, it's raining out today. It's supposed to clear up around four o'clock. So maybe hour and a half or so. <laughs> are there any in uh, San Francisco or the Bay Area? There are none in the Bay Area right now. Like I said, I'm flying over to New York to our flight test center this afternoon. But seriously, if you want to come out here, come fly with us. Amazing. Take you up on that. All right, Kyle, we are over on time here, so I'll let you go and, and get to this flight. Uh, before we wrap up, if any founder listening in just wants to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this awesome vision, where should they go? Well, they should come to Burlington, Vermont and come fly with us. And if you can't make it to Burlington, there's a website, beta.team. And, but that's, you know, that's a website. You know, one of the things that we do here is we document things in video and like we have a YouTube channel that, you know, follows along some of our test flights. It's a little phase lag from reality, but it gives you a taste of how much fun we have here. Amazing. I love it. All right, Kyle, thank you so much for taking the time to chat and talk about what you're building and, and share some of your perspectives on how to build an amazing company. This has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. I know the audience is going to as well. So thanks again for taking the time. Thank you, Brett. You have a good day. All right, Jim. <laughs>